So let me tell you a little bit about the genesis of this paper, um, which was frankly a lot easier than the showing of this paper, um, which was I gave a talk at a symposium at the Food Drug Law Institute in October. The symposium was actually a very interesting idea because what it was designed to do was to bring practitioners together with academics. Now, if you know anything about food and drug law, you would know that practitioners actually tend to zero in on a very small topic, and they know it really, really well. Academics are jacks of all trades. So we know the landscape really well, but we don't know the little details, necessarily. We sometimes get them wrong, and we have to have a bit of skin. Um, as far as I know, this has been vetted by enough practitioners now that I don't have any of the facts wrong. Uh, but the idea was, how do we actually, instead of looking at this even as Congress does, how do we actually look at what needs to be done that's not just a political issue or even what's an issue that will benefit certain drug companies or certain biotechs or certain individuals, but what would we actually do to move along personalized medicine? So before we do that, we actually have to talk a little bit about what personalized medicine is. Now, this has been a goal, personalized medicine, um, and it is linked, as we'll talk about in more detail, to the idea of the sequencing of the human genome. In the 1990s, there was a heroic effort to sequence the human genome a private sector versus a public sector competition, which actually was fantastic because it moved both groups along. And within a number, at that time, seemingly short number of years, um, we succeeded in sequencing the entire human genome. And the idea was that's all we needed to do. Once we did that, everything's gravy because people are like cars. Once we knew what was in the genome, you could actually plug it in, and we'd be able to have personalized medicine, because we would see where people had mutations, and we would address those mutations, and people would be much healthier. Two things came out of the human, well, lots of things came out of the human genome, but two major pieces. One is we actually found out that humans have a remarkably few genes, um, probably an order of magnitude one-fifth of the number that was expected. Um, and so people were sort of disappointed in that, but they thought this is even better. It's going to be great. We're going to be able to do it. You know? yeah. One-fifth means we can actually move much more quickly. Um, and so there was a lot of talk in the 90s that we will have true personalized medicine by the time we move to the new millennium. Unfortunately, we were wrong. Um, it turns out that, yeah, we do have a lot fewer genes, but the part of the genome that uh, is typically viewed as junk is actually very active. The part of the genome uh, that is not designated by particular genes, but actually where genes are in the genome has an important piece. And then it turns out that RNA, which is how we transfer the message from the genome, to the proteins is crucial, and we're still trying to unpack pieces of exactly why it is that certain genes are turned on and turned off. And what we're finding is, so you take that one-fifth of the number of genes, 
but you then start adding all the math of this kind of variation, and we are remarkably complex. So we're not getting there soon, but it's still an aspiration. We hope to get this. And it's a new aspiration. Um, when things are mentioned in the State of the Union address, it's actually worth paying attention to because that means government is about to start pouring more money into it. There was great interest around 2000. Um, what I would say now in 2015, there is renewed interest in what this should look like. The question is, will that renewed interest actually go into areas that will actually move us into true personalized medicine? So what is personalized medicine? You'll actually hear most scientists um, talk not about personalized medicine. That's something that means a lot to you and me as lay people. I'm assuming many of you are lay people. Um, but what you will typically hear, at least at the Institute of Medicine, is you will hear precision medicine is the term used. And the idea with precision medicine, it's often based on genomics or proteomics. And the idea is we're going to actually target a specific mutation or a different mix of these and have our medicine designed for individuals with those mutations. Prospective medicine takes us a bit further. The idea is we can actually see diseases before they're, they're manifested, before you have uh, symptomatic pieces. And we're actually looking at a lifetime and so this is designed to look at some of the pathophysiological pieces that I'll talk more about in a minute. Uh, similar stratified medicine uh, will give us another term. And it's an important piece that we're all talking about slightly different things when we talk about personalized medicine. But the basic idea is we're going to tailor medical treatment to individual characteristics, which is really amazing. We don't do that. Most individuals think we do. When you go out and take a drug, you probably think that that drug is going to work for you. And in some cases, happily it does. But it may work better for someone else. It may make you sicker than other people. Um, it may not work at all. And we can go on a, on a continuum of, for example, a lot of painkillers. Uh, probably have about 90% effectiveness across the whole population. A lot of drugs we use for cancer actually have significantly lower, maybe 20% efficacy. So even though you're taking this poison, the likelihood it's not going to work in many instances. Some are dramatically bad. So what we're trying to get is beyond that. What we're looking for with personalized medicine is the treatment is going to be maximally effective and maximally safe for you, not for an average you. We'll take that apart in a minute. These are, I hope, what we will view as quaint um, in 20 years from now, but they are dramatic if you are in the subset of people that need and have used these uh, Drugs. Herceptin changed the world of breast cancer in 1994. Uh, we actually believed, in, well, we didn't believe, we didn't know why many people did not respond to breast cancer drugs. And what Herceptin did is it actually targets a particular um, piece of the mutation on a breast cancer tumor and allows you to attack that directly. And 
all of a sudden, people who had very aggressive breast cancers started to survive. And we are in the process now of largely fine-tuning that process. And I myself have felt this. I have a sister-in-law with a Herceptin-positive uh, tumor. 20 years ago, she would be dead. She's now ostensibly cured, although it's too early to use that word. So it's dramatic. Similarly, we can see, for example, that certain people with certain colon cancers shouldn't get therapies because they have a specific CRAS mutation that actually shows us there's no reason to poison these people with this drug because it's not going to work. And we're getting a little better and better at this process. We do it within a framework that was set in 1962. Now, a few of you have taken the food and drug class. You know 1962 is red letter year in FDA world. It's the year that we moved from a situation where drugs were evaluated for safety alone and moved into a requirement that drugs had to be both safe and effective. Remember what I told you already about what effective means, though. So that's our framework. It is not effective for everyone. It is also based on, and we'll pull this apart a little bit, on what I would call a phenotypic disease model. In other words, we think about disease in the way we experience disease. Um, and the way we experience disease is with symptoms. That's how you, when you think, um, you know, I have breast cancer, you think about tumors that are forming in a breast. Um, and that's how all of medicine is structured. And in fact, until recently, most medicine focused on acute symptoms of disease. It's only now we're starting to understand the physiological process that lead us into disease um, or lead us into health. And those may not manifest in a way that we can see for some time. Another piece is if you are a drug uh, pharmaceutical company, you're ideal because they will tell you, and depending on how you figure this, they are not off, that it costs about $10 billion to bring a drug to market. If it costs you many billions of dollars to bring a drug to market, you would like it to be taken by as many people as possible. And that's why the focus, until recently, has been on creating blockbusters, a billion dollars in sales. What we're looking for is large populations. Uh, examples of this, certain antibiotics, um, some antidepressants, Viagra, which we'll spend some time pulling apart, one of the top blockbusters. Um, if we actually come up with an obesity pill that works across the population, that will be the blockbuster of all time. We'll all be skinny, and someone will be very, very rich. Um, and so that's what the model is, and it's worked pretty well over the last 50 years. But it doesn't work if we talk, start talking about personalized medicine. And the reason it doesn't work is what this is designed to do is to try and find the places we are all alike. When we start unpacking variation and it's looking for variation, that's not going to make any of us any money, and it's really hard to prove. So, 
These are the four points, and probably this is the most important slide, and if you have to leave, you will have gotten it. These are my view on what we actually need to do to truly achieve personalized medicine. Uh, one thing you'll notice there is not a focus on greater exclusivity, which is the focus of a lot of legislative endeavors, because that theoretically and to some degree will improve innovation. Uh, you won't see um, all sorts of things that are focused on in many of the legislative endeavors, because most legislative endeavors are focused on our current model, not on what we actually need. Um, what we need to have, and this is what I've been talking about, is a study of the mechanisms of action rather than the disease itself. We need to understand how that applies in the body to different individuals across different conditions. And that will be, I'll take that a little bit apart in a minute. Another thing we don't have at all, because if you are a drug company, the more standardization we have in the system, the less money you're going to make, because it's going to be easier for someone to copy it. And so that's a crucial piece right there. You don't actually want standardization. The more opaque you can make your process, the better protected your product is. And in fact, if you've made it really, really opaque, patent doesn't even matter, because it's going to be hard to get into understand. Another piece related to that is data. As you will see, probably I think data is the major piece uh, that we need to work on. It is also going to be extremely difficult because by making data available, you will likely, at least in certain contexts, limit innovation because the motivation will be lacking. You won't be able to protect the product you've got. And then finally, nimble clinical trials that are ongoing. Our current process, actually, it may take 10 years to bring a drug to market. A lot of the hard work and the most expensive piece of that work is in the clinical trial phase. Typically, you design a clinical trial to get what FDA wants to show that this drug works in this population. Clinical trials end when you get that. They do not keep going. They certainly don't go in a situation where multiple companies' drugs are playing at the same time, except for a few marketing studies, which are designed to produce an endpoint that shows one drug is better than the other, usually the one that's done. Oh my. individual uh, variation unless you're dealing with the subpopulation where it lives. 
as we will talk about, environmental factors play a huge role. And so we will move into that piece. Um, so let's take some of this apart. I'm not the first, sadly, to think of some of these issues. Um, the Institute of Medicine had a, what I found a very important uh, committee report looking at this new taxonomy of uh, disease and that we shouldn't look at just phenotype, that we need to move to pathophysiological processes. And it points out um, that many drugs that people think are for one thing could be very effective for other things. And these are actually the more uh, well-known here. You have a drug that's been approved for a small number of solid tumors. It's actually because of its mechanism of action probably effective for many, um, especially gastric tumors. Uh, the generic for Viagra um, actually works not just for erectile dysfunction, but it's been approved for pulmonary um, hypertension. And it's because the way it works is it actually has dilation of certain vessels. Not all vessels, they're all spread out. Um, but that's how it works. Another one you see pretty commonly advertised, I think we're about to see a lot of them because the Masters is approaching and uh, Nicholson takes Emerald. Um, but for rheumatoid arthritis is what it's approved for. It turns out because the mechanism of action is anti-inflammatory, it may be a dramatic new drug for asthma. Um, and that would actually be more important, bigger population than rheumatoid arthritis, but unless we actually know the various details of how it works, we won't actually get there. Now, our drug approval statute is based on product approval. And this is where the scientists start getting squirrely and they look at me and say, this is crazy. And what I'll say to them is, the bottom line is you can't do things that are outside of the legal structure what you have. And we in this country, not in Europe incidentally, but we approve individual products. That means FDA has to take a product as it comes to it. It also means FDA has limited authority to monkey around with the process. And this actually has broad implications in many areas. Um, as I've mentioned, it also may take 10 or more years to achieve. You have to, as we've discussed, prove that your drug is safe and effective for a specific indication. Um, and that's going to be based on the average user. This was intentional in 1962. The legislators could actually anticipate that maybe we should be actually looking at individuals. But it was also pragmatic. We didn't, never mind we hadn't actually sequenced the human genome, we couldn't even imagine how to do it. <coughs> we barely discovered genomics. Um, the other piece is this was a time where doing such a thing, regulating such a thing, would have crossed over into the purview of the physician. And again, at the time, it made sense. Medicine in 1962 was as much of an art as a science. And what you would have is the physician's individual experience might be a better indicator than some of the little teeny bits of science that we had in 1962. 
Now, today, if you are a smart drug company, and this is actually a crucial, crucial decision that you need to make, and you need to make it before you start moving into your clinical trial phase. So you make this decision usually um, after you've done a lot of your basic research pieces with a potential drug. You know its basic mechanism of action. But what you want to do is choose what's the indication I'm going to get an approval for. Even though you may anticipate that it may affect some big disease that many people have, you can, by deciding to choose a secondary indication, a disease that only a few people have, then limit the variation in that population. And that limited variation means you're going to have much less noise in your clinical trials, and you may be able to get your drug approved for that specific purpose. Will. So a lot of the, the framework we've been working with is, is within the existing 1962 framework. Is there any indication or any room to play with future legislation that would change the process to enable this to happen? On a so some of it is, is you actually look at the definitions of what a drug has to be, um, it actually has pretty broad definitions. So some of it you could move. What you can't move is this sort of thing. So the FDA actually can't say to a drug company, no, I want it for this larger indication rather than this secondary indication. And this is actually, you're looking for your best return on investment. And it doesn't, in some ways, I could tell you a tale where this is great. Um, in the sense that it means I'm going to get that market onto the market really quickly. And then everyone can use it because the way it works in our world is if it's been approved for a purpose with limited exceptions, it can be used for any purpose. The problem with that is you don't actually know how it works in that larger population. You only know how it works in the smaller population. So the data's not out, and we'll talk about that. But it is, in terms of, for the, a drug company, and I do not think this is cynical. I think this is designed to get things out quickly. Um, there's limited economic risk in doing this. In fact, it's the opposite. You want to get it out there quickly with limited variation. Sorry, I have a question from a couple slides ago where you showed the drugs that have like different effects. So you can have one that does one thing, right. but also something. I know next to nothing about any of this. So uh, you may need to like walk me through this. But how can a drug, like, so say you want to take it for the uh, for your heart condition, but you don't want like the other effect of the drug. Like how do they like have to change the chemical structure? Like how do you? Yeah, this is one of our big problems right now. When you use an off-label for something, you may have, you want to use it for something else, but mm -hmm. some of the nasty side effects that it was designed for yeah. are still there. Now, there are situations with a few drugs, and, and there are biotechs going into this where they have a specialty in a certain area. I'm talking about a company called Vertex, which works with cystic fibrosis. Vertex has actually taken cystic fibrosis down to all its different genetic mutations. And it's targeted in that context. But that's unusual. Okay. So, the people on the vanguard of personalized medicine are physicians. Um, they can use drugs off-label, as I said, with very few exceptions. And that's a good thing, actually. It means there are many, many situations where we are able to treat people for conditions for which there is no, there is not an approved drug. But this is becoming 
hard to do, and it's becoming a real problem. It's a double-edged sword. It's got that positive piece, but what we have is physicians essentially on hunches <coughs> decisions. Now, there was a statute amendment to the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act in 2007. Um, those of us in the business, and I actually can't tell you what it actually stands for. We call it for the... Uh, um, it is the statute for law professors that is a gift that keeps given. Uh, you can write an article every week on FIDA. There are lots of pieces with it. Now, FIDA was dramatic in, in many ways. One of them was it started requiring some sorts of transparency. Um, it meant that you, and some of this is extended, but if you are a drug company, you get your drug approved, you have to post your clinical trial data, or at least your final clinical trial data. So that means it is available for someone to study. Now there are a couple problems. Remember I told you if you are smart about this, you're making your clinical trial data fairly opaque because you're trying to protect your product. So that's going on. The other problem is it's assuming that a physician, and if you actually, any of you have been in physician's offices right now and watched an average clinician try and treat patients, they don't exactly have a zillion hours to go out and study the full details of the mechanism of action of the drug. What they will depend on is typically their practice group, so the American College of Cardiology or something like that, will have some individuals who are looking at these and you'll see some reports on them. But that's again population-based. It's not based on this individual in front of the patient. So it's very difficult for physicians to pull this apart. They are not the solution anymore. Physicians cannot possibly know all that they would need to know, even in a tiny subpopulation in many instances. So our current focus, what you'll actually hear about um, personalized medicine is that it's companion diagnostics. The idea, it's like Herceptin, we're going to choose mutations that will actually be treated by this drug, so the first step is actually an appropriate diagnostic that figures out where the variation is, and then we'll figure out what, how to treat it. Even this, which is sort of basic, is hard. It means we're actually involved in uh, at least two centers, the Center for Drugs and uh, Evaluation and Research and the Center for uh, Devices and Radiation. Those automatically are involved because the companion diagnostic is typically viewed as a device. The other piece of this is FDA is very worried about these because it's worried about how many false positives come with this and whether they actually work. And so it is now requiring, in an area where some people say there should be no regulation at all, it is requiring the toughest kind of regulation for these diagnostics. And all of them so far that have been approved have come through in this pattern. So that's slowing things down. So this is the stuff we know how to do, and it's already pretty slow. Another way we're looking is the orphan drug pathway. The orphan drug pathway is designed for rare diseases. Remember I told you that blockbuster model. I'm going to make more money if it's something that everyone has. So we recognized this and we thought, well, we need an orphan drug pathway that is designed to actually focus on rare diseases. And what's more rare than an individual, right? Ideally, the orphan drug pathway should get us there. The only problem is it doesn't. 
Um, first of all, it's working for many rare diseases. There have been big, big benefits. Because it gives extended exclusivity, um, people are willing to go into that area. Um, it also has a shortened pathway, and you can actually bring drugs into the market with much less cost. But some of the bad things are, remember that secondary indication. I can choose an orphan secondary indication and get all my orphan benefits, apply it to a blockbuster model. And there are actually a whole slew, slew may be overstated, a number of uh, drugs now that were approved on orphan status and can achieve blockbuster uh, uh, status. Now, the problem also is to get my orphan drug for a rare disease, I'm still using the same pattern of clinical trials that I used before. I'm again trying to limit variation, not embrace variation. And so it's not, it may be helping me with rare diseases, but it is not getting us towards personalized medicine. Another piece you'll hear, um, this is really fondly held by a lot of legislators on both sides of the aisle, is the idea that we should focus not getting real data on clinical uh, safety and efficacy before approval, we should require it post-approval. Uh, my beefs with this as a, as a methodology of getting us to personalized medicine is, first of all, it's post hoc. We're actually not looking at a variation until later, and so everything's designed on a broad model until we actually get into the post-approval state. Not standardized, so I can't actually pull the pieces apart. And it may be, under current statutes, limited to safety only. Um, which is not giving me any of that efficacy data that I really want to get. So I don't think this may, in certain instances, get us somewhere, but it doesn't get us everywhere that we want to get by any means. Now this is a very cool uh, process and something that um, a number of companies and uh, universities are embracing, um, and that is the idea of taking old drugs and repurposing them. This is similar to what I was talking about in the taxonomy situation, where we actually, once we understand how a drug actually works and understand its mechanism of action, we can actually see all sorts of conditions it may be applicable to. Um, and the money-making example, the one everyone will give you if they're talking about you can indeed do this properly, is Celgene. Celgene took a drug that is notorious, thalidomide, and actually um, turned it into treatment for leprosy and for certain cancers. Um, and without having patent protection, uh, at least in the big, broad way of having patent protection, Celgene has been remarkably profitable. Um, and a way to do this, so it's quaint, the way we used to do and still do sometimes drug um, discovery is you take a certain chemical compound or in the case of some of these things, we're taking a biologic. And you literally just start looking for a disease that it might work on. Or the other way, you're taking a disease and you're uh, trying thousands of compounds on it. That's, you know, do you do that when you do a computer search? Is that how you, when you're looking for a search, how to do it? No. And it's not how we have to do it now. With 
really dramatic uh, bioinformatics, we're now in a situation where you can actually, once you have some data, start looking for other ways this works. And some of these have been dramatic in the sense of things that uh, some old, what are called tricyclic antidepressants, who would think that would actually be a useful treatment for lung cancer? But it turns out that they are. So um, this is a place where there's a lot of potential action. What are the back pieces of that? The problem is you only get, it's, most of these drugs are off patent. You're only gonna get limited exclusivity um, if you do it. So it's not really very interesting for industry to do, but industry is the only one that has the capability of doing it. So what we're moving into are new partnerships with academic NIH and industry partnerships, and possibly that will work. Um, there are continuing problems with this. Um, it's, is it practice of medicine? Is it research? How do we work out the patent issues if the actual pioneer company still has an interest in it? Um, and so we need to explore it. But the bottom line is that it's a start and it actually is a model that actually helps us see what the broader model might look like, but it does not help us to just do this with old drugs. We actually need to be doing it with new drug approval for it to work. Now, remember I told you clinical trials you're designed to prove that indication is safe and effective, and you stop there, typically with one or two drugs, um, and that's all we're doing. We don't want to have the complexity. We now have in the breast cancer area, breast cancer has more money than almost any area, and so it's often an innovator in this, uh, in terms of moving us forward. Um, we have something called adaptive clinical trials. These are personalized medicine. They are using multiple drugs. When one patient fails on a certain drug, they are moved to a different therapy, and so on. The way to make this work is to have so many people in your study that your numbers have statistical significance. But for most diseases, that would be impossible to do. We're having trouble enrolling people in basic current trials. To do this, you really need sophisticated researchers um, a very active disease group, and you know, essentially the stars are falling. So this is the future, I think. This is, I think, the way we will have medicine in the future, if we really want to move to personalized medicine, is every single interaction with medicine is actually part of the research study. But we can only do that if we set up certain standards to do it with. And that requires standardization. This will require statutory change. There is nothing in the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act that can, the FDA can actually say, you must do this clinical trial the way I want it to. Um, now, a lot of companies will do it that way because FDA is saying that because they think that's going to get them to their approval faster. But if FDA is saying it because we want to make this data so everyone else can use it, why would you do it that way? I wouldn't. I've got my money on the line, right? So this will be the trick of how to do it. How do we standardize clinical trials so they can be used broadly and maintain innovation? 
And how do we actually standardize something and realize that science in 2015 is probably, you know, also point the way we're going to move that. So our standardization may not be focusing on the right things. So we've got to have not just standardization, but evolving standardization so that that will be able to develop. The crucial piece is data. And this is probably a story of your age for most of you in this room. Data is everything for everything. Um, and access to data is not just crucial for the physician, it's crucial for future drug developers. And what the big battle we're having right now is data is often the most valuable asset a drug company has. If you look at some of the examples of this, 23andMe, anyone know 23andMe? 23andMe is a direct-to-consumer genetic testing company, um, probably the most successful. For a lot of people, their interaction with 23andMe is largely recreational. They think, oh, it would be cool to see, and some want to beyond looking cool to see, they want to see, you know, what are my potential risks? There are a fair number of questions of how how good the data that 23andMe gives you is, but it certainly, for certain uh, characteristics, has been robust. But frankly, for 23andMe, that stuff is just how they get the data. Once they have the data, is what they will. That is the data at that point is far more valuable than their algorithms and the other pieces, and they can use it to corner different therapies for personalized medicine. If I tell 23andMe, hey, you got to make it open to everybody, what are they going to do? No. But if you don't make it open to everybody, you can't use the data. So we don't know how this is going to play out, and I haven't figured it out. Last few things. I know some of you have class, so go ahead. I will not be um, offended. Uh, this gives you an example um, in a graphic of what I think of as, as network medicine. Um, and this barely has cuts any of it out. What you see here is the fact that data is not just what we would call the middle part, which is a pretty advanced version of the disease framework. It actually includes the environmental social networks, all of those people, as well as down at a molecular level, the metabolic network uh, and the interaction of the issues within an individual's body. All of those need to be put together for it to actually work. It comes from many, many, many sources. And not all of these are HIPAA protected. In fact, the quaint part is your electronic health record. But if I'm doing clinical trial data, I need to mix that with electronic health records. If I could put all of this into a giant supercomputer, I would have remarkable information about how drugs work in terms of safety and efficacy. FDA will play an important role in this, um, but it will be a secondary role. FDA's got to figure out exactly how it's going to deal with confidential proprietary information, how it can use it. One example I give here is the rare disease repurposing database, which FDA has actually taken the database it has and is not confidential 
and made it so it can be used for current drugs in a repurposed model. But imagine if FDA could do that with all the confidential data it has, which is the vast majority of the data it has. And then last slide, this is part of a larger conversation. It's how we use data in the world, never mind just in the United States, uh, in the future. To be really useful, this data has to be identifiable. To be identifiable is going to be very hard if we don't have robust ways of protecting people. But there are discussions of whether we should look at this type of data as a public utility, where everyone puts in, everyone gets out, and you would have, the law will play a very, very prominent role because the only way you can do it is if people are not harmed by doing so. And that's my way of looking at the future of personalized medicine in an ideal world, um, but it's really what we're going to have to do.